right, if you'll take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 8, we'll read our text here in just a bit. Just find your place there, open your outlines, and, uh, and we'll be ready uh, in just a, a bit for that. Because today what I want to do is I want to continue. This is the series within the series. The series is a victorious Christian. And last week I started talking to you about how to have victory over discouragement or despair or depression. Today I want to do the second point in the outline that I gave you last week. And next week we'll conclude this kind of, again, series within uh, the, the series. But um, I want to begin by giving you a story that I think is about discouragement, but yet it ends in victory. Um, George Washington had... Um, in the Revolutionary War, just suffered two major defeats. He had suffered a defeat at uh, Brandywine Creek and then uh, at Georgetown. And uh, the prospects for success for the American Revolution were looking very bleak. He only had 12,000 troops left, and that's not much when he was up against the massive, well-equipped British Army. And uh, his men were worn out. They were discouraged, deeply discouraged after those two losses. And so Washington's uh, strategy was to take them to an obscure, barren valley in Pennsylvania that we know as Valley Forge. And he took them there with the uh, intent to rehab them, hopefully, as best he could, or let them recuperate over the, the winter. But it just so happened it was one of the worst winters in history. Again, his uh, troops, they were suffering from uh, discouragement, incredible discouragement. It looked like uh, the hopes for uh, victory in the revolution were all gone. His army was half-naked. They were without supplies. Um, many of them were going uh, barefoot. They were starving to death. And uh, so uh, you can imagine the kind of discouragement that settled in over uh, the troops. But there was one man who had joined the revolution. He had come over from Prussia. His name was uh, Steuben. And he was a Prussian military um, uh, expert, really had fought in battles before. And Baron von Steuben believed in what was happening in the American Revolution. And so he came over and joined George Washington to offer whatever help he could. Well, because he was an expert in uh, tactics and military training, uh, and uh, he was a, uh, a pro-soldier, he, he took that troop, those troops that were sitting there in uh, Valley Forge, discouraged, and he began to encourage them that they could, they could win this war. And he began to train them uh, to be soldiers and fighting machines. And by the end of winter, they were just that. He had trained them, he had encouraged them, and uh, he had motivated them to kind of lift up their heads and to go forward and go on in the battle. They did that. And shortly after, they won the Battle of Saratoga, which was a significant battle. And then after that, they went on and they won uh, the battle at Yorktown. Yorktown was, was and is considered one of the most decisive victories ever. And it was at that point that the tide of the revolution, uh, most historians will tell you, turned, was the Battle of Yorktown. And really a fascinating place. I, several years ago, um, I was there and I love history so much. And I you can take a tour of the battlefield, and it's a lengthy tour. It's several hours to take the entire tour, and, and uh, I love that. So I'm a plaque reader. If I go to the museum, uh, it's going to take me a long time. I'm going to read all the plaques. That's what they put them there for. 
and they have this on this battlefield tour you can take this tour and there's stops along the way you're listening in your car and you can stop get out and there's these plaques and everything well I I did it and my wife graciously agreed to ride along and not roll her eyes uh, through the whole endeavor but it's a fascinating place and because it was there that the, that battle that victory really turned the American Revolution toward um, toward us it was victory but it came because of um, uh, von Steuben's help because he intervened when all hope was was lost and he brought encouragement and he brought training and I thought as I was looking back over that story I thought you know that's what discouragement does it, it shuts us down they were shut down they didn't think there was any hope that looked like the dream for this new United States of America was going to be annihilated at the hands of the British Army and the, the bitter winter cold. And yet, because of the right person who knew the right things to give them a new perspective, uh, just the opposite happened. The same thing uh, happened to us. 2,000 years ago, there was a man who showed up in our camp. And his name was Jesus. And he showed up into a world that was uh, dis discouraged. In fact, the Bible describes it as yearning and groaning for its creator. And against the backdrop of discouragement, he showed up. God says at just the right time in Galatians 4, at just the right time, God sent his son Jesus uh, to come into the world for us because we needed him. And we still do. One of the most discouraging moments of the disciples' life was when when the disciples were facing the reality that Jesus was about to be taken from them. And he told them he was about to be taken from them. And he says this to them because he knew what was coming for them, great discouragement. He said, let not your heart be troubled, literally thrown into chaos. He said, if you believe in God, believe also in me. At a moment where he knew that great discouragement was coming to them, he said, look, and don't, don't be discouraged. We have to be reminded of that. And I want to tell you today, I want to talk to you about some comforts that God has brought to us uh, to help us when we are in those times of discouragement and times of despair. Maybe you're watching on television or live stream or you're listening to us by radio or right here in this live audience and maybe you're going through a season of discouragement or despair. And I want to, I want to share with you today some things that comfort our heart because the man, Jesus Christ, came into the world he came into our camp so that he could change our perspective and give us the hope and the promise of victory yet to come he did it with his disciples he's done it with us and that's important because listen perspective when when you're discouraged when when you're in despair perspective's everything because the devil will cause you to see things or believe things that are just out and out lies now last week, if you recall, I gave you the first point and I talked about some causes for discouragement. I gave you three what I consider re really broad categories, but most of the things that produce discouragement in our lives can fit or land under one of these. Just for quick review, it's on your outline there, we talked about the causes of discouragement like accusations. We said that was one of the causes when, you know, and he, he uses that here in the passage as we'll note again in a moment, but... Uh, when we've been falsely accused, sometimes even when we're rightly accused, accusations have a way of shutting us down, don't they? The other thing we talked about was tribulation. 
And that's a really broad category because that means the pains of life, the sufferings, uh, all kinds of traumas or events that, that happen in this broken world that, that the devil uses to discourage us. And then we talked about separation because Paul uses all of these ideas of separation uh, as the idea, of course, of being alone or having to face life alone or having to face the traumas and the difficulties that come our way alone. And uh, so these things coalesce, maybe any combination of them, to discourage us and sometimes produce a kind of depression. But today what I want to do, and the second point there on your outline, is I want to talk to you about comforts for the discouraged. If you're discouraged today, I'm going to give you three facts that help bring comfort to us in the midst of discouragement. But first I want us to read our text. If you're physically able to do so, why don't you stand with me as we read again our passage from Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great statement. And if you, when you sit down, if you take, uh, if you underline or mark in your Bible, you ought to underline that one and keep that, uh, and keep that especially when you get discouraged. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We'll come back to that this morning. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the accusation thing we talked about. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Father, would you enlighten our hearts, our minds? Father, would you teach us, instruct us? Father, hear, let us hear the truth. And for those who are discouraged, those who are depressed, uh, those who are in despair on some level, whatever it may be, God, I pray that you will take your word, minister grace to their hearts, uh, Father, and uh, cause them to understand uh, the encouragement and the comfort that comes in Christ. Speak now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Now, the passage of Romans, the whole really book of Romans, was written to these Christians at Rome, and there were many believers in Rome. Now, there were a lot of Christians there uh, in Rome, and that gave them some measure of strength, and it certainly helped produce a reputation for them. If you go back to chapter 1, you read that their, their faith was known, was known throughout what we would say the then-known world, so they had a reputation, a good reputation as believers of faith, and they had a lot of numbers, but, but... They were discouraged uh, because they were facing struggles and uh, they were beginning to see isolated pockets of severe persecution. And that persecution would only get worse and it would only strengthen and eventually it would decimate the Roman church and send them underground. Now, the Apostle Paul would be the last person in the world to say to any of us that once you become a Christian, all your problems will be over. 
You know, he would never say, no more pain, no more suffering, no more discouragement, no more despair. No, his lifetime uh, is, is uh, proof that he didn't believe that. You see, he had several, uh, in several times in his life, been thrown into prison. He'd been flogged. He'd been exposed to death. He'd been stoned. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been placed, he said in 2 Corinthians, in all sorts of dangers. Paul certainly could attest to the fact that the life of faith is no bed of roses. And yet, Paul said, all such suffering in the present time is not worthy of comparison with the glory that awaits a child of God in the future. Now, that's a life-changing perspective. And that's why perspective is so important. And our comfort comes from the right, having the right perspective. Paul says, the stuff that we experience right now, the pains, the difficulties, the tribulations, the separations, accusations, all of these things, he said, listen, they're not worthy to be compared with what is awaiting a child of God. Uh, he says in another place, he says, this momentary light affliction that we're undergoing, you know, and in this broken, fallen world, this kind of affliction. He says, listen... It, it, he didn't deny the reality of it, but he's, what he's saying is your perspective has to be kept on what's ahead. Perspective makes a huge difference. Clearly, living as a Christian in a world that is dominated and controlled by sin is going to involve suffering, and at times, uh, it's going to be a factor that contributes to our discouragement and our depression. But the good news is that we're not alone. And Paul reminds us that we can, in fact, be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 37 again. He said, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. In the Greek, it would be said like this, we are super conquerors. In Christ, we are super conquerors. It's not just like, we okay, we, we, we eked out a victory. He's saying, in Christ, we can be superior conquerors. We can be super conquerors. By the way, next week, I'll finish this mini-series in the series by talking to you about the conquest of discouragement. I'm going to show you five things that will help you have victory, uh, uh, practical victory over uh, discouragement. And so, so uh, uh, Paul is writing here to encourage these believers who, who are seeing themselves as defeated, discouraged, despairing and he says no 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 matter what you're going through you're still more than conquerors in Christ Jesus and so in this second point today from our passage I want to show you uh, these uh, comforts for discouragement they're found in verses 31 to 39 keep your Bible open and uh, these are I call them facts about our relationship with Christ that bring comfort to us and they're also facts listen that alter the lies we believe from the devil. When you're discouraged, a lot of time it's because you're believing the wrong things or because you've forgotten the truth. You've forgotten what God says about you. And isn't it amazing how quickly we do that? We forget what God says. We forget uh, uh, what his word teaches us. And so we forget those things. And if we do and we're not careful, it, we can be very discouraging because our eyes, remember, remember, Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. Why is that? Because when you live by your eyes, you're going to be discouraged. And right now, if you live by your eyes, you're going to be really discouraged, right? And so, and so it's important for us to understand some things, some facts that fight 
the lies that the devil puts in our head that brings great discouragement. What's the first fact? The first is this, that in Christ there's safety. Look at verse 31. In Christ there's safety. What shall we say to these things? He's talking about all these things before and really afterwards that he'd been talking about. He's saying, if God is for us, then who can be against us? That's all about safety, isn't it? And his statement is to assure these believers that God is on their side. He's writing essentially to say, God is for you. If God is for you, no matter what is thrown at you, nothing can be against you. If over the long haul you can say, God's for me. And the fact is that he's writing that to them. But I want to tell you something. God is for you too. You say, well, that's the Roman Christians. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. God didn't say, I was for you and I'm not now. God say, look, God never changes. He's the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. So if God is for you then, God is for you today. Amen? So he's still for us. So in Christ there is safety. There's a story I came across, and I guess it is, I mean, it still happens this way. I don't know, but there was a monastery in Portugal. And it was, uh, it was built on a cliff 3,000 feet high above a, a crevasse. You know, monasteries, especially some of the ancient monasteries, were often built in very obscure, hard-to-reach locations uh, on purpose because the whole goal of the monastery was we want to separate ourselves, come out from among them and be separate. They took it literally, and they would build in obscure places and hard-to-find places so they could be away from the world so to speak and this particular one was built on a a cliff 3,000 feet up and there was a tourist who had was was wanted to go and visit the monastery and they allowed people to come to the monastery and so he climbs to the top of the crevasse side to go across and the way you get from one side to the other was through a rickety old basket that you would you would climb into and then they had some monks on the tourist side, I guess that's the best way to say it, who would pull on a rope, these strong guys who'd pull on a rope, don't let go guys, and they pull you across this 3,000 foot high crevasse to the other side. And this particular guy, he's, he, he wants to go and visit the monastery, but when he gets up and he gets in the basket, he looks and the rope is old and very frayed. And he looks to the head monk on that side and he says, <laughs> he said, how often do you guys change the rope? And the monk, without missing a beat, looks back at him and says, every time it breaks, we, we replace it. <laughs> Climb in, right? I want to tell you something. Too. That's somehow how the world feels to us. The discouragement of the thing, man, the rope's about to break. I want to tell you, that's why you've got to change your perspective. You've got to build your life on what Jesus says because, listen, listen, let me tell you some good news today. God's rope never breaks. And God's rope doesn't fray. It doesn't get frayed out, you know. And, and so that's why you've got to change your perspective. The devil wants to discourage you. And he wants to do that by making you believe that God doesn't care about you. And he'll put that kind of lie inside of you. God doesn't. You really think God cares uh, about you? And, uh, and what he'll do is he'll use adverse circumstances He'll use family issues. He'll use sickness. He'll use any number of what I call fallen world realities to try and wobble your faith or to try to make you stop trusting God. 
He'll use these things to make you believe this life. God doesn't care about you because if God cared about you, you wouldn't have to face some of the tribulations of living in a broken world that's under the, the uh, operation of the enemy. And so the devil said, you think God cares about you? But listen to what the psalmist wrote. I love Psalm 3. Uh, it is um, one of the most powerful psalms to me in all of the book because it talks about David who is running most likely from his son Absalom, his own son, trying to kill him. There are several psalms that deal with that. But he's running from Absalom. And, and there are a lot of people. Absalom is trying to pull off a coup in the government. And he's amassed a whole bunch of people. And David is not fighting his son. David could have easily squashed Absalom. But it's his son. And he, he's just running from him instead of trying to confront him and fight him and that sort of stuff. And so uh, against that, he writes Psalm 3. And uh, the whole psalm, it's a short psalm, but to just a couple of verses are my favorite in there. He, he writes in uh, 3 and verse 2 and 3, he says, Many there be which say of my soul, all right, are you with, it, with me on this? David says, there are a lot of people out there that are saying of my soul, there is no help for him in God. In other words, God doesn't care about me. There are many people out there saying, look, look what I'm going through. Uh, uh, and, and many people are saying, there's no help for him. God's not going to help him because God doesn't care about him. And then he adds, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. Wow. By the way, our choir and orchestra sings that song. It's incredible. Thou, O Lord. I first heard it with the Brooklyn Tabernacle did it. And just an incredible, powerful song. So he says, they're coming after me. They're, they're accusing me. They're chasing me. They're saying things like this. God doesn't care about me. And then he says, but he answers, he says, but thou, O Lord, you are a shield around me. He goes on to say, and so... We, by the way, when you're discouraged, depressed, distressed, stressed out, you have trouble sleeping? You can, can't you? And so you know what he does? It's, it's okay. He, because his perspective is right. He says, so I lay me down and I slept. And I arose, meaning the next morning. So I just laid down and went to sleep. You know what he's saying? Listen, this is a paraphrase. He's saying, Lord, they're saying you don't care about me, but I know you are a shield about me. And so, God, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to sleep. I lay me down, and I slept, and I wait. And so what he's saying is, God, you're my shield. You're my strength. My eyes are on you. They're not, my eyes aren't on them because I'm trusting in you. I can lay down and rest, even in a storm. Even when things are out of control, it seems, or when I'm facing tribulation or persecution. Listen, the devil wants you to believe that God doesn't care about you. Don't you believe it? The devil not only wants you to believe God doesn't care about you, but you know what the devil wants you to do? He wants, you to, he wants to discourage you by getting you to live in fear. That's another, you know, oftentimes discouragement is a result of, of fear, that the devil plants some fear in our hearts or in our minds, and we start letting that fear control us. He wants us to forget who God is. He wants us to believe that God is helpless. Not only does he not care about me, he is helpless to do anything uh, for me the devil wants you to believe that and he'll whisper these kinds of lies to you but listen to what psalm 27 1 says the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear 
The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That is a counter to the message that the enemy of your soul wants you to believe. If you believe the enemy's message, you're going to live a life of discouragement and despair. Because he's going to say, God doesn't care about you. Number two, God is helpless. You follow God, God is helpless. But the psalmist understood. And then the devil wants to discourage you by getting you to believe that you're in a battle all alone. I'm the one that, this is, look, remember this. Go back and read Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, and you'll see the lives of men and women of God. That's what it's talking about and how they've lived for God. And because they have, he goes on into chapter 12 and says, this is a great faith witness group, and if they could do it, you can do it. The devil wants to tell you that you're alone. Remember Elijah in the cave? He sat down in the cave. God had used him magnificently, and he sat down in the cave. He runs for miles and miles. He sits down in the cave. He's discouraged. He's definitely depressed, and he says, God, I'm the only one left. He wasn't, and sometimes, though, the devil wants you to think you're the only one left. That there's nobody out there that shares um, your love for God. There's no one out there that uh, understands what it means to follow God. And you're just the only one trying to live for God. The devil wants you to believe that. But listen, I want to tell you this morning, you're not alone. These lies that the devil tells you are to discourage you and to defeat you. But they are lies. Because if God is for you, and by the way, that's a rhetorical question he's not expecting them to answer you know or it's a rhetorical statement he's not expecting them to respond he's not saying do you believe God is for you he's making a statement that doesn't even need a response it is a declaration of truth and fact he is saying if God is for you no one can be against you and the implication is that because the devil would say yeah if God is for you but do you think God is for you the implication is like this. If God is for you, and he is, then who can be against you? It's not if God is for you, and who knows. It is if God is for you, and he is, then no one can be against you. Um, so I, I ask you, are you depressed today? Are you discouraged today? Is there some despair in your life? I want to tell you some 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 good news Jesus not only has prayed for you but Jesus is praying for you so how, how do you get that well he says over here uh, in the passage that Jesus is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us I, I don't understand all that process but I'll tell you this if Jesus is praying I want him praying for me hello I mean, if somebody's going to be praying for me, I want you praying for me, but man, if I've got a rank, I want Jesus up at the top praying for me. Hello? But Jesus also told us he's praying for us. Did you know that? In John 17, it, we call it the high priestly prayer. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Jesus is about to be taken away from them, arrested, tried, crucified. But he's praying for them. He's with the Father, and he is praying while he's on earth before he is crucified. And listen, you know what I love about it? In that prayer, he says, Father, not only he's praying certain things for us, to, by the way, one of which is to deliver us from the evil one, but he says, Lord, I don't, only, I, I don't pray this just for these, talking about the disciples around him, 
But he makes this statement. This is cool. He says, but also for all of those who will believe, I pray. That's us. He has prayed for us. Isn't that cool? So he prayed for us 2,000 years ago when he prayed for the disciples. And then Paul says, and it is present tense, he is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, which means this, he is interceding and he continues to intercede for us. Wow. Why? Because there is a great cosmic battle going on. Even though you may be saved, the devil wants to cast you into despair and discouragement and to break you down and make you ineffective for God. And so Jesus is our representative before the Father, having prayed for us and continuing to pray for us. Listen, you know what it tells me? It tells me God is for you. He really is for you. And that means the safest place in the world is living in fellowship with Jesus Christ and in obedience to His Word. The psalmist writes in 4.8, I hope you're jotting these down so you can go back and look at them because they're fantastic passages. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He really cares about you. He says again, this is chapter 4. Chapter 3, he said, I lay me down and I awake. Chapter 4, he says it again. He said, I'll both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Only Jesus can give you uh, that kind of confidence where you can say, Jesus, he's got this. It's not up to me. He, he's got this. And so I lay, I lay down because my Father has got this. And I am safe with my Father because my Father cares about me. I, uh, I woke up this morning and I had a text message on my phone early this morning from uh, our daughter in, uh, in Brentwood. And um, she had sent it last night, uh, close to midnight. She actually thinks we stay up like she stays up. So that's why I didn't see it to this morning. But she said this, Daddy, I just wanted to tell you Thank you for being a great dad and a great granddad to the boys. Thank you for all you've done for me and for us. Just wanted to tell you how much I love you. Well, listen, man, they just blessed my morning. And so I sent her a message right back. My message back to her was, it's about time. <laughs> no, I didn't. I d didn't say that. I sent her this message back. I sent her a message that said, sweetheart, it is the joy of my life. I said, you are the apple of my eye, and the boys are the cherries on top of the cake. And I said, I, I love you so much and care so much about you. Now, I only share that with you to say this. If I, I'm an imperfect father, but I love her as perfectly as I can, your heavenly father is a perfect father. I care for her, but he super cares for us. I mean, it's super care for us. And so, friend, that's why I say to you, he really is for you. I'm for her. She's my girl. She belongs to my wife, too. But I'm going to tell you something. I got her back. How much more so would a perfect heavenly father say, I care about you? 
you are safe with me. You are safe with me. Psalm 32, 7 says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Listen, if you're battling discouragement today, don't miss and don't forget this first fact. God is on your side. Don't let the devil tell you anything else. What comfort, right? That is for the discouraged heart. Here's a second comforting fact for the discouraged heart, and that is in Christ there's not only safety, there's supply. Look at verse 32, if you will. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he, and here's the operative phrase, how will he not also with him graciously give us, some translations say, supply us all things? Now that statement certainly references all the eternal blessings of our salvation. And here's all, he's given us all things, the eternal blessings, the things that are ours in heaven. But it is not restricted to those things alone because it includes everything both spiritual and uh, uh, material that we require between here and eternity. You see, much discouragement today in many people is really a trust issue. They really, they really don't trust God. They know they ought to, and they know to say that they trust God, but they really have trouble trusting God. Charles Spurgeon, who battled these things, I told you last week, he wrote this. Listen to what he said. There is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed on you. His heart beats with pity for your woe. And his omnipotent hand shall bring you the needed help. The darkest cloud shall scatter itself in showers of mercy. He, if you are one of his family, will bind up your wounds and heal your broken heart. Do not doubt his grace because of your tribulation. But believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in seasons of happiness. If God cares for you, listen to this, listen to this. He said, if God cares for you, why do you need to care too? Did you get that? Can you trust him for your soul, but not trust him for your body? The fact is, everything you and I need is supplied in Christ. And the point is, if God would sacrifice, verse 32... If God would sacrifice his own son for our sins, if you and I are that valuable to him, we can and should trust him for everything. Right? That's his point. He said, "How if, if, if God would not spare his own son, but would sacrifice him up for us, how will he not also with him give us everything else that we need? In other words, if you're that valuable to God, so valuable that he would send his only son into the world to die for you, how could he, would he not also say, that's the ultimate, right? To die for, how would he not also with him give you everything else that you need, both for life here and for life in eternity? And his point is, if we're that valuable, we can and should trust him for everything. I told you last week, that Charles Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis both battled depression and discouragement, and frequently it was created by their fear of poverty, they both admitted. Now, right now, we are living in an interesting time where we hear a lot about um, 
supply chain kinds of issues. Can you get the things that you need or that you're going to need and that sort of thing. And it has created a lot of angst and they tell us an incredible amount of discouragement as a result of that. The government can't figure it out. They keep blaming it on people who don't agree with them or on nations that are not even a factor. The media can't figure it out. They keep assuming that just some new policies will be the answer. The cultural elite can't figure it out. They keep discussing the symptoms, but they have nothing to treat the problems, no solutions. But friend, I want to tell you something. Paul is reminding us that there is no supply chain issue with God. In fact, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 55. He says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. That's a pretty good promise, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty comforting. Wouldn't you agree? That he is our supply. So if, if, if much discouragement and depression is a trust issue, the next time you're battling it, and if you're battling it now, I would just ask you to ask yourself a question. What am I trusting in? Or who am I trusting? If you're discouraged or you're depressed, it's likely it's a trust issue or it's a fear issue or a combination of those two things. And it's the product of looking out at the world instead of looking up to God. And so ask yourself this question. Who or what am I trusting in? Because the answer will tell you maybe the reason you're discouraged or you're uh, depressed. So put your, put your eyes on him above. I love Psalms uh, 20 and verse uh, 7. It says this. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't that a great verse? Look, let me give it to you again because y'all need to put this somewhere so you can look at it when you get discouraged. Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots. You know what that means, the strong stuff out there. Some trust in horses, you know, something that'll make the way. But not us. We're not counting on, well, we got to be smarter, sharper, stronger. We're saying we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In His name is everything we need. He's our supplier. He's our safety. And so we put our trust in the name of the Lord God. We're not trusting in the things that those outside of the kingdom of God tend to trust in. What is their, look, what is their bank account say? What is, uh, 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 what is their uh, group think? What do I think? We say, what does God think? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. But there's one last uh, comfort I want to give you this morning uh, in verses 35 to 39. It's the third thing. So we're, we are comforted uh, by the fact that we are safe in Christ. We are comforted by the fact that in Christ there is our supply. And then third, we're comforted by the fact that in Christ there is security. There is security. Verse 35 and verse 39 both speak of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And the point is this, when all the battles of life rage against us, when we are discouraged on every front, when we're, when we're facing uh, things that we don't have answers for, we are comforted by the fact that no matter what the outcome is, our security is in Christ. 
See, our relationship in Christ is unchanged no matter what's going on in our life, our world. Our salvation is secure. Our soul is safe. Listen, it's another way. Think of it like this. So, man, I'm facing a storm, and that storm has discouraged me, or that storm has has thrown me into despair or depression, and it just keeps coming like in waves or that sort of stuff. Here's what he's saying. Listen, remember this. Nothing separates you from the love of Christ. What that means is it doesn't matter what happens to you. In this broken world, there will be things that uh, come at you, that you battle and everything, here's what you remember. No matter what happens, I'm saved. No matter what happens, I know how this works out. That's why Paul would say and call this stuff light, momentary afflictions of a broken world. But he didn't say these heavy, long-term, eternal afflictions. No matter what happens in this broken world, in your life, always take comfort in the fact that you are secure in Christ. That's why he says, what can separate us? Did you notice he said, neither life or death? What is the reality of that? You sometimes, your faith will get you in trouble in this, in this broken world. But he said, these things don't separate us from the love of God. And so what you do and what I do is we have to remember that we are secure in, in Christ. Um, if you're discouraged today, let me urge you to pause and contemplate the fact that nothing that comes against you can ever undo what God has already done for you. You want me to say that again? All right. Nothing uh, that comes against you can ever undo what God has already done for you. See, that's security. I mean, they can, take, they can take my life, but they can't take my eternity. Right? Why? Because that's secure in Christ. During the initial construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, you've seen, maybe you've seen there, you've been there before, you've seen pictures, I've been there before. So it's an incredible thing. And when it was built, there was not really anything like it. But in those days, there wasn't OSHA, and there wasn't all the rigid requirements for safety and that sort of thing. And, and uh, in the first phase of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, 23 men fell to their death. Now, you can imagine that's a pretty good morale booster to the rest of the people, right? I mean, let's go to work. Uh, which one of us will it be? today who will fall today you know to 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 our death you you can't imagine that was a real morale booster right and so they began to realize that what was happening is great discouragement uh it was real heavy on the people that worked there number two many of them just quit they said i just can't do it and and many of them said i'm scared to death i have to work but i'm scared to death and so they were working very cautiously and ineffectively And so toward the close of the bridge, they had an idea of how they would complete the final phases of construction. They had a massive net uh, built, and they put that below the work zones where the people would be working. And actually, 10 men fell into the net, but every one of them survived. And it produced, they found this incredible response by the workers. Now they were, in fact, They produced at a rate 25% higher than they were producing before. Well, I think you can figure out why 
suddenly they felt secure that even if they fell there was a net to catch them and so it boosted their morale and it kind of removed the heavy heaviness and the discouragement and it improved their work security is vital to our outlook on life but Christ is who we look to as our security he is that net that provides security both now and for all of eternity I did two funerals this week for two wonderful individuals who've been part of this church for many, many years. And uh, do you know what made those services powerful? It was the fact that both of those people were secure in Christ. So, so that security provided a different tone, a different perspective about a memorial service. It is a homegoing service. Why? Because they just fell into the net, the security net of their relationship with Christ. And see, we have to see that's a perspective thing. When we learn to see what the Bible, what the Bible teaches us uh, about our future, then we can learn that right now when I'm discouraged, I put my eyes on the future, the, what the uh, Hebrews 11 believers said, they were looking for a city not built with hands. I look down there. I don't look and say, gosh, this is going to go on forever. I realize that in the grand scheme of eternity, this is light momentary kinds of affliction. Our security then is in Christ for both now and for eternity. Our security is based in his love for us not based in our love for him. Now, I want you to get that. Our security is based in his love for us, not our love for him. And his love is unconditional. His love sent his son to die on the cross for us. Security, security. God doesn't, God doesn't do this. He doesn't say, you know what? I used to really kind of love you, but you've kind of ticked me off. I don't love you like I used to. Now, you and I may sometimes say, I really used to care about that person, but I don't care about them that much anymore. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? So what God says is, look, I love you eternally. I love you unconditionally. And the Bible even says that we love him because he first loved us. If you say, I love God, and I hope you do, but remember you love him because he first loved you. And his love never changes because he never changes. He is, again, the same today as he was in the past and will be in the future. It's not us holding on to Christ. Our security is in the fact that Christ holds on to us. In fact, he said, all that are mine <clears throat> have been given to the Father and no one, nothing can snatch them. That's us out of his hand. We don't hold on to him. We'd lose our grip. He holds on to us. And much discouragement and much depression today is really the product of insecurity. We try to find security in all the wrong places. We try to find it through possessions and accumulations. But then we discover that managing and protecting the accumulations and the material things only creates new anxiety and sometimes greater discouragement. We try and find security in position and popularity, but then we discover that maintaining those positions and those places creates even more anxiety and discouragement. Or we try and find security in people and relationships, and when we do that, we discover the burden of being a people pleaser. Have you ever tried to live as a people pleaser? By the way, you can't do that. You're not designed to do that. 
Now, don't try to live as a people offender. I've met some of those people too. But we, if we try to live for people and relations, try to be secure. If I get people to like me, if I have enough people like me, then I'll be secure. That's an exhausting cycle, and you'll never keep everyone happy. These things, possessions, positions, and popularity, and people, those are in and of themselves not the problem. The problem is when we substitute those things for security that only Jesus Christ can give you. Because those things are all going to pass away. So they can't secure your heart, your soul, your mind. The Niagara River goes over Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been there. I went there a number of years ago, been there a couple of times. And I remember my first trip to Niagara and I was on the Canadian side. And you can walk up to the, uh, to the edge where the falls are going over. If you've ever been there, you walk up to the, I mean, literally, it's like the falls are right there where the stairs are. And they have this rail right here you know so you can't fall in hopefully I guess you could do something stupid climb the rail and jump over but but I remember that and I'm telling you it's one of the most awesome moments in my life where you see this this uh, water going over it's 180 feet down now you can just stand there's a mist coming up all this kind of stuff and I remember when I started walking over to the edge to see the water going over and I'm, I'm doing this it's over there the rails up there and I'm going You know, you know, and don't anybody touch me. You know, have y'all ever been there or something like that? And I'm to get there and I, I get there and then I grab hold of, the, I left my fingerprints in the rail, that metal rail. But I'm watching this stuff go over and it's, it's a pretty awesome thing. You know, there's a few people that have survived going over it, but not many people in history have survived going over it, you know, in barrels and all kinds of stuff like that. What you may not know, and I I guess it's still there, is back up the river a little ways before the rapids really kind of kick in, there's a pedestrian bridge that goes over the the river. And I guess, again, it's still there, but there used to be a sign posted, not for the pedestrians, but for people in boats coming down the river that that would come and fish and everything. And there was a sign posted so the boaters could see it, and the sign said this, Do you have an anchor? And then it had another question. <laughs> if so, do you know how to use it? It won't do you any good if you don't know how to use it. And it's another warning that this is about as far as you need to go. Because if not, you'll get caught up in the current and then you'll be uh, uh, swept over. Can I tell you something? We have an anchor for the current, the, the rapids that, that come at us. We have an anchor. Our anchor is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us he's an anchor for the soul, teaches us he's an anchor. He's a refuge in the rapids, in the turbulence, in the tribulations. You and I have to anchor ourselves to secure our life with the truth of God. You know what that truth is, Paul says? That God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Nothing can separate you. You are secure in Him. He is your supply, and He is safety. Psalm 118.8 says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. So, I close with this. Are you discouraged or depressed today? Then find your comfort in the safety of your relationship with Christ. Nothing can change that. Are you depressed or discouraged today? Then then find comfort in the fact that Christ is your supply. He has everything you need. 
Are you discouraged or depressed today? Then find your comfort in the security of Christ for both this life and the life to come. Here's a verse. Here's a passage right down. You'll want this one, you know. Told you the, the other Psalm 20, but Jeremiah 31, 25. Listen, for I, that is God, will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing, depressed, discouraged, despairing soul, I will replenish. The world can't do that for you. Only he can do that. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Set your mind and heart on things above. Do you know what the tallest building in the world is? It's in Dubai, the Burj Khalifa rises up 2,700 feet, that's half a mile. It's twice as large as the Empire State Building. You can go up in that, I have seen pictures of it, I've actually seen a video from the top shooting down, and the video makes you wobbly. On the 127th floor, there's an observation deck. No thank you. And on the 76th floor is the world's highest swimming pool. No thank you. Why do I want to go up that high to swim? It's a massive building. You look it up when you leave. Look it up. Incredible building. But do you know what makes that building so stable? It's what you don't see. You see, when they started building uh, the Burj Khalifa, they spent a year underground before you ever saw anything above the surface. A year. They were pouring the foundation. They were, were uh, putting in the, the steel footing and all of that. They used 58,900 cubic yards of concrete that weighs more than 110,000 tons. And if you ask them what secures the building, they'll say that foundation secures the building. Did you know that these buildings like that, do you know they are designed to sway? When the World Trade Center still existed, I was in, I was in them on a speaking trip up in New York, and I, I went up in the World Trade Centers, I remember the first time, and uh, it's a long it's a long process, not nearly as long as this. By the way, the Burj Khalifa has the fastest elevator in a um, high-rise in the world, 40 miles per hour. Uh, pretty fast in the World Trade Centers, the one we went up in. But at any rate, I remember getting up there, and it's in the observation deck, it's, uh, Bradley, it's like glass from the floor to the ceiling. Well, not anymore. But I remember when I got off, and I did kind of like I did with the waterfall thing. You kind of get over there, and you're, you can look, you're looking down on, out there at the Empire State Building. I've been on top of that one, too. That was pretty impressive. But you're looking. It's, it's down there, and you're, you're here. And I remember the glasses right there. And uh, I, I looked over that thing, and I thought, okay, I've seen it. And they told us these buildings are designed to sway. A few years ago, my family went to the, up the Sears, Sears uh, Tower. I don't know if you've ever been up there, to the observation deck. And up there, they had this crazy thing made. They had these glass, at the observation deck, these glass booths. They're solid glass, and they're designed for you to walk out in 
and they jut out of the building so that they're out here the buildings here they're out here and when you walk out there you're standing on the glass looking straight down I'm still not sure why I did that except to make my daughter think I was braver than I really was but they say these buildings are designed to sway sometimes three to four feet I, th I thought I felt it a couple of times you know so what keeps them in place it's the foundation the right foundation now here's what I close with are you discouraged today are you despairing are you depressed you know what it might be because you're building or living your life on the wrong foundation listen to what Paul said for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is in Christ Jesus so any foundation other than that is a prescription for disaster Jesus even told a parable about a man who built a house on rock and a man who built his house on sand they both look great on the surface but only one stood the storms and the tribulation the difficulties and dear friend, if you're not building on the right foundation, your house won't hold. I'm convinced that there are a lot of Christians who have forgotten the foundation to build their life on, and the devil has attacked them and discouraged them and created fear in their lives. I'm also, I'm also convinced that there are a lot of religious people who have built their houses on sand and at the first wind their their house collapses there's only one foundation that's Jesus Christ if you're battling with despair and discouragement all those kinds of things look make sure you you've got the right foundation would you pray with me Lord Jesus we do <clears throat> uh, we're so easy for us to to get off of the right foundation and to get on our own foundation and even try to spiritualize it and make it make it as if it's your foundation lord forgive us for that but help us to make sure we're building right and i pray for any that are watching listening in this live audience that their foundation they've got off the foundation that you'll move them back that they'll recognize today father that that the devil wants to cause them to believe a bunch of lies so that he can discourage them and father for those who haven't even really started to build they've started a religious kind of process but they've never built a foundation that's in christ Jesus. they've never trusted you would you cause them today to call on you you have said whosoever shall call upon the name of the lord will be saved so cause them to call out to you right now to say something in their hearts like Lord Jesus come into my life forgive me of my sins be the foundation of my soul I know that I need you I know that you love me I know that you died for me and I receive you as my Savior Father let that be their prayer today as they begin this transformation and this new journey would you speak now in these moments before we're gone we pray in Jesus name